the message particularly for today, I would pick up a, a loose end that occurred to me. Yesterday I started into talking a little bit about how many people might have been included in the Bride of Christ from the Old Testament. And I think I estimated, you know, maybe 50 names, maybe a few hundred, I don't know for sure. But Paul shed a little light on that in Hebrews 11, uh, in which he named quite a few people who will be in the kingdom of God. And we have a few hints about some of those very individuals in other places in the Bible as well. And after he went through a roster, of course, he was writing a letter. And he said, for sake of time and perhaps space as well, uh, there were others he could mention who would be there. I don't know how he came to know who would be included and who would not, but I think probably the only source or time that he would have found that out would have been the three years that he was with Christ in the desert being taught of him. And uh, maybe that question came up, well, how many are there in the past and who are they? And Christ may have very well shared that with Paul. So that when it came time to write Hebrews, he could name those names with confidence. And uh, I take it very as a very positive thing that God named some even from back in that era who will be in the kingdom of God. He's very positive about it. And if you examine the lives of those people, they were all human, just like us. They had their foibles, their problems, their difficulties, and yet overcame and were forgiven and are going to be there forevermore in the kingdom of God. And by contrast, even though God does say there will be some weeping and gnashing of teeth, he assures us in Romans 11 that the vast majority, or all Israel, as Paul puts it, will be saved. Not very much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we don't want to be in that, and we have opportunity now to avoid it. So he gives us encouragement. And in fact, he never, as I've said before, uh, mentions anyone who is not, or who is consigned to the lake of fire. Not one. He doesn't say that of Judas. He doesn't say it of Esau. Uh, there may be some indication of danger there, but Judas clearly was never converted, and I doubt Esau was either. So even though they may have had serious problems and Judas may have betrayed Christ, that's nothing. So did I. So did you. Uh, by sinning, uh, any sin we've committed is a betrayal of our Savior. So, you know, it's kind of hard to put Judas in that category is the betrayer. Uh, how long did it take Peter to betray him right after, uh, you know, denied him three times almost immediately? So I don't think by any means Judas is lost. If he never understood and never received the Holy Spirit, which he didn't, obviously, it didn't come until 50 days after Christ ascended. So uh, he never was converted, and Christ even told Peter at that time, When you are converted, feed my sheep. Because he wasn't yet. So God is very positive, and that's good for us to take. But getting into more of the message for today, in particular where I left off yesterday, I want to go to Matthew 6, because the focus is, during this piece, the kingdom of God, and more information about it or review some of the information we do know, maybe add a few points or whatever, but 
It's a time to concentrate on the kingdom of God as it indeed pictures the kingdom of God. So I want to go down to uh, verse 8 of Matthew 6. He's been discussing the hypocritical, pretentious prayers of the Pharisees and those who considered themselves righteous and who vainly repeated prayers. And it was just so much noise and God did not appreciate it. So he says, Be not you therefore like them, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask him. So apparently their prayers were quite selfish, and they spent a great deal of time in their prayers asking for things for themselves. And their prayers then were pretty much selfish in approach. Give me this, give me that, importuning him for something they wanted or needed or whatever. Uh, perhaps with a bent toward the physical blessings they wanted, I don't know. It doesn't sound like the attitude they were in that they were asking for spiritual blessings too much, but perhaps things for themselves. So he said, don't pray like them. And then he tells us how to pray. After this manner, not in these exact words, so that you repeat this little Lord's Prayer, as they call it, over and over and over again, so it becomes like the rosary or something. Uh, that isn't the point. It is after this manner. And I want to examine that a little bit today and how he put this together. After this manner, pray you, Our Father... Notice the plurality there. Not my Father in heaven, our Father. And you will find our and we and us throughout this short prayer. Never once does it mention I. I, 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 and me, me, me was the way the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the self-righteous hypocrites prayed. So when he tells us pray after this manner, our Father... We should be inclusive when we address our Father in heaven because we are a body working together toward salvation, here to help one another, and it is not just my Father, it is our Father. In families, I have noticed many times over the years that one of the parents or the other will sometimes say, my child, my son, my daughter. In some families, you hear them say, our son, our daughter, because they are being inclusive as a set of parents, our. And you can see the difference in a family that looks upon themselves as we and our as opposed to my and I. If you're observant of that, it becomes very obvious. And sometimes you can tell which children are favored above others. Because they, in some cases I've seen it, where they referred to our daughter, but the same parent would say, my son. So they make a separation based on what they consider theirs exclusively. Maybe that's a minor point. 
But I think it is a major point for us to consider in analyzing the manner in which we are to pray. That we are to think of ourselves collectively, not communistically, I don't mean that, but as a body, as something working together to produce something good, all the parts working in harmony. So we don't pray selfish prayers. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we address him as deity, we recognize his position, and then we hallow his name. We can speak of his glory, of his greatness, of his omnipotence, his omniscience, big words, but he's everywhere and everything and able to accomplish. And what that does at the beginning of a prayer is recognize how great he is compared to how minuscule and unimportant relatively or by comparison we are. It also puts us in a mood to trust him, to believe him, to expect an answer from someone that great. You usually approach someone if you need something who might have it, right? You try not to approach someone who does not have it. Now people do that often. Birds of a feather flock together. So a drunk will seek out a drunk. A financial lack of management or poor manager will seek out someone else who manages poorly so they can commiserate together and nobody is improved. So when we approach God, we need to recognize his expertise in everything. Give him glory and honor and praise for what he has done. We can even talk about the glory of his creation, the stars above, and the earth we live on, which is such, and has been, such a wonderful place that is beyond comprehension, really, if you sat down and didn't know anything about earth and started trying to design a place to live, I doubt any of us would come up with what God made. We wouldn't have the foresight, the insight, the capacity to even dream of such a place as this that he gave us out of scratch without a prior knowledge of it. He is the designer and the producer and has the power to do what he chooses to do. And that includes all the benefits in the scriptures that he says can be ours if we will simply live by faith. So it is an establishment of who is who at the beginning of a prayer. You are our God, and you are great for these reasons. Now, he already knows that, right? He is very aware of his power. He's very aware of his creation. He's very aware of everything we can remind him of. So it isn't really as much for his benefit as it is for ours that we give him glory and honor and praise at the beginning of a prayer. Because it helps set the mood, the attitude, in our minds and in our hearts, because we're about to ask him some things. And we need to know that those things will happen. 
to pray them in faith and confidence. Now, if you go to somebody on the street who's a derelict, drug-riddled bum, and you need something, and you approach him and say, you know, you're toothless, and you look like you're high, and I know you're low, and I know you have nothing, I know you couldn't do anything for anybody, in fact, you got kind of a vacant look in the eye that looks at me, and the other one's kind of went over there, uh, but could you help me out here? Now, how much confidence are you going to have that you're going to receive what you asked of that person? I'm not trying to put anybody down by that. I'm just saying you take someone who is in a loser situation for whatever reasons, but got them there. And they don't really have anything to give, and you can't approach them with any confidence that you're going to receive anything of them. So we approach our Father in heaven and give him great glory and praise and hallow his name, reverence it, worship it, or worship him who has the name. And then it puts us in the mood to ask for the next thing. Now, what would you think he would then ask next? Why, well, you already know you're reading ahead of me. Thy kingdom come. First thing in the prayer beyond recognizing God for what he is, is pray for his kingdom to come. Now, this is the form. This is the manner of prayer that we should basically follow. It is an outline. Now, sometimes we may be in such a mood that we have something on our mind that we think we need or want above anything else, and even if we know this form, we might skip through it real quickly and cut to the chase. You know, mouth a few words and then get out, get out to what's really on our mind and what we want. That isn't the point. The point is, as I made yesterday, we are in a sick and dying, violent awful place on this earth today. If anyone thinks that we have a wonderful culture and a good thing going in America or anywhere else in the world today, they don't know God, they don't know history of the time before Noah, and they don't understand what society and culture ought to be like. If there's anything glitzy or glamorous or appealing about this world, our values need to be adjusted because we don't understand. And we need to look at things through realistic eyes. Because the greatest need that this earth has is for the kingdom of God to come. So that there can be truly peace and happiness and joy, obedience, happy lives connected families, all the things that we will see before the series or this service, this, this feast is over, if I hurry. Thy kingdom come. Pray diligently. That's the first order of business, that his kingdom get to this earth. So that his will might be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Things are in perfect order there. The 24 elders and the angels that remain give praise and glory and honor to God and sing hallelujah 
and bow themselves before him on the sea of glass on his throne. And it is a perfectly united front, except for one blotch. And that is Satan who appears there to accuse us day by day. Now that also is according to the will of God. He has allowed that one fly in the ointment at his throne. Everything else is in perfect order. But things are not in perfect order at all on this earth, which is ruled by Satan the devil. And what you see around you is the way Satan likes to do things and is allowed to do things. Absolutely contrary to the way God does things. So God is allowing that before his throne for a while. And then he will be cast down, according to Revelation 12, for the last time and will not be allowed there anymore. And then there will be 100% compliance with God's will in heaven. And shortly after that, Christ will return and that kind of order will begin to appear on this earth. It may take a little bit. It says everyone will go up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles there in Zechariah 14, but as Gordon pointed out, if some people rebel and don't want to go up, uh, that will be fixed. The rain will stop, and they will have famine, and they won't have any food to eat, and they'll say, oh, I think we need to go to the feast, because they will have been told, hopefully by you and me, that the key to getting rain is to go to the feast. And they won't believe us. And they won't go to the feast. And then it won't rain. And then they'll go to the feast. God will cause his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. No fear. No worry. We will be safe. We'll have security. Or the people living on earth will, the humans. Things will be, will be utterly different than they are today. If they have cars, they won't have keys. If you have a house, it won't have a key. You won't have a lock on your post office box. They won't be needed. That whole industry, there'll be no locksmith. That whole industry will be gone. Master lock will be out of business along with all the others. No one will buy any of their locks. Forget it. We're to pray for that day to come, and come quickly, because it is desperately needed. No sickness, no disease, no epidemics, no droughts, no tornadoes and hurricanes that destroy. They just won't exist anymore. We should be able to get our hearts into praying for that kind of situation, and for that kingdom to come to this earth. No miscarriages, no babies born dead, no babies dying of crib, whatever they call it, and the things that we go through today. We'll be blessed in the womb and blessed in the field and blessed in every way, as Deuteronomy points out. So that's the first order of business. Nothing selfish yet. We're still praying, yes, for ourselves, but we're praying for the whole world there, really, are we not? We're praying for the bride, first of all, maybe. Not just ourselves as one member of it, but for the whole bride. That his kingdom come. 
We're praying for every individual on the face of the earth is the way we open our prayer. We're praying to the God of the whole universe, and we're praying for every human being that walks the face of the universe. We don't have to make a list of everyone. You don't know all those names approaching seven billion. But we're praying for their health, their welfare, the only hope they have, and that is in the kingdom of God. Whether it be in the millennium or they come up in the great white throne judgment, they will have their opportunity at the things that we are praying for, the kingdom of God. So then it moves off, or or moves on, and says, Give us this day our daily bread. Don't give me my food, God. Give us our daily bread. Still plural. And that can mean physically, and it can mean spiritually. The bread of life for our physical bodies and the bread of life for our spiritual needs. But we're still praying for each other as well as ourselves. So far, we're, we're getting right on through this prayer now. And it's still about us, not me. And forgive us our sins, our debts, our offenses, as we forgive our debtors, or those who offend or sin against or make mistakes involving us or social slights or whatever runs your socks down. Again, we're praying for us. And it does add the element here of, I won't forgive you unless you forgive them. That is included right here in the so-called Lord's Prayer, or this manner of praying. If we pray for our sins to be forgiven, we are at the same breath asking for the sins of others to be forgiven as well. Knowing full well that Christ himself said, I will not forgive you unless you forgive others. You like to walk away from your sins and faults and problems as quickly as possible and put them behind you, don't you? Your bad attitudes, your wrong thoughts, you like to distance yourself from them. And you ask God to forgive your sins, don't you? And you hope that he does, and you hope that you can walk upright and in confidence knowing they have been forgiven and forgotten. But he tells you that if you expect that, you have to do it for any who cause any kind of offense, real or imagined, that occurs to you. Otherwise, you might well not even have prayed for your sins to be forgiven. You have to include others. And you must be godly in allowing them to walk away from their offenses, whatever they are, in the same way that you want to walk away from yours. If you don't do that, you do not love your neighbor as yourself. That's all there is to it. Therefore, he puts it this way. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Next, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So here in this short prayer, he addresses both our ruler, our leader, our God, 
the one on our side first who can do something about our problems and our needs. And then we ask for protection against the one who would draw us away from God. Don't let us be tempted and keep us from the evil one, it should say, or Satan the devil. So our our biggest issues are mentioned right here in this short prayer. Worship God above all, give him praise, honor, and glory, and have nothing to do with the evil one or his ways, his culture, his society, the things that he has produced on this earth that are designed to destroy our health and our lives, to kill us. And he has done an incredible job of it. So again, we're praying as a unit, as a group, as a body. Protect us from Satan. Keep him away from us. Don't let us be tempted. Keep us together as a family, as a body, as a bride. For yours, after recognizing Satan and what he is, as the prince of the power of the air, he says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So we open our prayer giving glory and honor, praise to God, and we close it in the same fashion. Now that puts us at the beginning and at the end in mind of he who it is who can help us. And beginning and end, Its focus is on the kingdom of God. That is our primary and our main focus. It's the one thing that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind. What is the purpose otherwise? People are born physically. They live physically. They may engender children. They try to become wealthy and to have all the physical things they would want to have. They want to be comfortable. They want to be secure. And then they begin to get old. And they can't do what they used to do. And they begin to deteriorate and fall apart. And then they return to the dust from whence they came. And if that's all there is, then let's have a party, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Enjoy it for what time there is, do whatever you want for yourself, be self-fulfilled, because that's all. Then it's over. There's a song about that. If that's all there is. I think is the title of it, or it's the main line in it. We know there can be something more. But life is pretty futile, and Ecclesiastes comes into play there, where Solomon, who had tried everything and did it to greater extent than any ever has as a human being, He had more wealth, probably, than any human being, then or now. He had more women than any man, probably, before or after. 
He had more physical things. He had a finer home than probably anyone before or after. He had virtually anything you could possibly dream of as a comfort, as a possession, as pride, as vanity, as ego. He had it all. He didn't have yachts. He had armadas of ships. He had it all. And then he wrote about it and said, If there's nothing more than this, it's all a futility. But an old, jaundiced, worn-out, emotionally broken king has nothing to look forward to but having dirt thrown in his face. If that's all there is, then let's have a party doesn't even work. Because the party ends, and we die, and that's it. Therefore, we pray this prayer. Thy kingdom come, let us be a part of it, keep us from the devil, keep us in your care, and usher in your kingdom, and make us part of it. Amen. Or so be it. So there's the outline of the prayers that day in and day out we ought to pray. Those key elements need to be there. Sure, that only takes a few seconds to to read. But you can flesh it out, you can make it greater, you can uh, embellish those points, and you can make specific requests of yourself as well. Uh, Christ did, even as he was dying. He says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. So he did bring himself into it because it was a trial that he himself at that moment was suffering through. And he addressed it because he was all alone. Us didn't mean a thing at that point. His apostles, disciples, were standing way back. There was nobody on his side but his Father in heaven. And at that moment, his Father had forsaken him. He was not with him. Why have you forsaken me, he said. Because he carried the sins of the world. And he had to die for them. So at that moment, even as he said, he was forsaken. And the father was sitting back, perhaps holding his breath. But utterly confident that his son would go through with what had to be done. And he did. So there was a point at which, yes, he could pray about his own specific trial. So I'm not saying don't ever pray for yourself, but that's what the Pharisees were doing, and that was mostly what they prayed about, and they repeated the same thing over and over and over again, and it was about things God already knew they wanted, and things that for the most part he wasn't even answering because they weren't following his ways. So Christ dismissed their prayers as being of none effect and not needing an answer. So he gave us a manner in which to pray that can and will bring answers in the hour and the we and loving each other as much as we love ourselves and including each other is a major part of that because he uses our we and us all the way through there. 
every time a new phrase is introduced, it's introduced that way. And the aim and the purpose of the whole thing is the kingdom of God. How it can happen, and the one who opposes us that could cause it not to happen. So the kingdom of God is really what it's all about. It's why we draw breath. There's no other reason for our existence except the kingdom of God. He built us, he made us, he created us from the very beginning with that thought in mind. He even discussed with the one who became his son the very real need that there would be that he would come to the earth and die for the sins perpetrated by Satan on us and our own complicity in it. Before the foundations of the world even occurred, that conversation had happened. The die was cast. They knew, if there's any doubt, that Adam and Eve would sin. Otherwise, they would not have not have put the plan in effect long before they were created to retrieve them from the sin that they would commit, and us as well. So it was all set up ahead of time, knowing what would happen, and God knew about you and me. That is the part of predestination that is true. We are not predestined to be lost or saved. God would not be presumptuous, isn't part of his character in that way. We have free moral agent, we, agency. We can choose our path. We can choose life or we can choose death. He's given us that capacity. And he sits back and, as he says, ponders our hearts. Which way will this one go? What are you going to do at this particular crossroad in your life? Which path will you take? So he watches, and he thinks, and he meditates, and he sees us sometimes take wrong paths, go the wrong way. He saw us become what we were before he called us to where we are today. And he was able to be above that, to take the high road, to say, I want that one, I will work with that one. I want that one for my son. I got some work to do, but I'm taking it on with you and me. So if he were so willing and his plan was such that he intended to make us God and be part of his family when this is all said and done, you would think we would just automatically say, Yes, Lord. I'm going that way, I'm going with all my heart, mind, body, and soul, and I want to fulfill the reason you put me on this earth. I will leave sin behind and wretchedness and degradation and negative attitudes, and I will believe, and I will move forward, and I will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Emmanuel, and I will become like God in my thoughts and my actions. Get out of my way. I'm headed for the kingdom of God, so help me, God. And you might even change that a little bit 
and say, get out of our way because we are headed for the kingdom of God and nothing can stop us, so help us God. And then work together to help one another arrive there. To love each other fervently. To encourage and strengthen and help one another in any way we can. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Set the right example for our brethren. Set the right example for the world and be a light to it. Because does not he tell us there in Isaiah 43, You are my witnesses that I am God. Be a strong witness that God is God. Be a witness that is a believing witness. And show your belief by your actions and your thoughts and your conversations. Be a light to the world, not a darkness, but a light. Now you say, how can I do that? Well, you can do it in the stores as you shop. You can do it in your interaction with people at work in whatever way you come to be in the public light. And that may seem small, and yes, it is in a way, but if we're faithful in little things, we'll be faithful in much. And very soon now, we are going to be exposed to the world in a very, very public way. And the whole world will know us. They will all know of us. They will know where we are in the promised land, in the true Jerusalem, and in the temple of God. And the whole world will know it. And we have to be a light set on a hill to be seen from the heights of Zion. Protected, taken care of by Almighty God. So he has called us to be his witnesses that he is God. That is an incredible responsibility to take on. In a sin-sick world where no one, almost, recognizes who God is, and even the ones who are religious or so-called Christian don't know the true God because they don't know his word and they don't know how he thinks and acts, and they don't know his plan and purpose. You can't be a follower of a God that you know virtually nothing about. So it falls on you and me and others whom he's called out at this time, not this group. I don't mean that. He has people scattered throughout the world that he's going to call together soon. And they, the whole group, 7, 8, 10, 12,000, probably the number will probably be somewhere right in there. Out of the billions on earth, that will be all who are a witness that God is God. So we're in pretty exclusive company, are we not? We have something incredible to look forward to. No, we're nothing. Who are you? Who am I? We're nothing. We still have foibles and weaknesses and sins and wrong attitudes and all that. And yet God has called us out and pointed us in the direction 
of witnessing to the world who he is. That's a formidable task. For someone to look at you, for someone to look at me, and say, I see God. I see God in that person. I can know by looking at that person that there is a God. They're doing the things that the Bible says. They're fulfilling the prophecies that are written in the Bible. I can see God through them. I won't worship Him. I'm not going to bow down, mind you, but I can see God through them. I know He exists because of them. That's what a witness is all about. You are my witnesses. And he's speaking of the group. He's speaking of his church, of the bride-to-be. He's not speaking of two men. They may be the official carriers of the word, but they're not the entire witness by any means. It is the called-out remnant who are the true witness. And they can be pointed to by the two who are formally appointed to talk about it to the rest of the world. So we're in this together, and we need to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and ask it of our Father who is in heaven. Pray about yourself as Christ did in time of stress and need. We can make our own personal requests known. But let's not forget the overall framework and the manner in which we should approach God and the outline of prayer that he gives. Because the kingdom of God is the key. I want to go back now to Isaiah 45. Because here are the writings of a man who had the very heart of God. A heart like God. A man of God's own heart, as the scripture puts it. I want to read Psalm 45 and see how this man approaches it. My heart wills good things, or the Hebrew indicates bubbles up. My heart bubbles up about good matters. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. Now this is a psalm, as many are, about Christ, about his coming to the earth, about his deity, about who he is. David recognized that. And you'll see it very clearly as we go through the chapter that that comes out. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. He was leading his life in regards to, or in the manner of, someone who would be touching the king. His thoughts were of, his life was directed toward the king, toward Christ, and toward our Father in heaven. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. I'm eager, I'm ready, I want to, I'm motivated to write these things about the king. We see that in 2 Corinthians 8, 12, and 19, I think it is. Be of a ready mind, a willing mind. Not a no, no, no mind, not a negative approach, but of a ready mind. Always ready to help, always ready to pray, always ready 
to complement, to strengthen, to guide, to lead, to set the example of a ready mind. You are fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And that could only be said of Christ at the time that David was writing this. So, in Matthew 6, when it says that we are to give glory and honor to God in the beginning of our prayer, here David starts a chapter, a prayer, if you will, a song, with that very approach. It's about God and how great Christ is and uses perhaps different words, more words than we saw in Matthew 6. He fleshes it out, as I said, and makes it more real. He focuses on it. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O most mighty, with your glory and your majesty. Now that is saying, thy kingdom come, isn't it? It's saying, put on your armor, put on your weapons, get to work and get this thing done. So he's not just saying three words, thy kingdom come. He's focusing on the need and the preparation and what must occur for that kingdom to get here. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. What did Christ say in Matthew 5 as he began his first major address to his disciples? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who are not self-righteous, those who are peacemakers, and so on. The Beatitudes, they call them. David said the same thing right here. Because Christ is meek, and he came to this earth as both meek and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach wondrous things, not terrible in the terms of violence, but wonderful things. Did he come and teach those wonderful things? Yes, he did. Is he going to come back in power and might with his army and take over? Yes, he is. So this is an expanded prayer of thy kingdom come. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under you. He's going to come back and conquer the earth to bring and usher in his kingdom. Satan's world has to be conquered. Satan has to be bound. The enemies will no longer be around. So our prayer will be answered. Satan will not be at all, in any form or fashion at all, around to tempt people. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You rule from your kingdom on a throne. The scepter of your kingdom is a right scepter. We have people ruling today who do not have a right scepter. They have an arm of violence. They have an arm of war. They have an arm of self-aggrandizement, of wealth accrual. They make deals and defraud us and our tax dollars. Day in and day out. Every government on earth is like that. Every last one. His is not. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Can you say that of our Congress? Our so-called public and civil servants? Hired 
to bring good government, to fulfill the needs and the wishes of the people, to maintain and preserve their rights in the Constitution that was formed for us to live under? Can you say that they love righteousness and hate wickedness? <laughs> Not a chance. Any of them. God has put, put over the nations the basest of men. Daniel 4, I think it is. Maybe it's 6. Right in there. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. He's put him above all angels. He's put them above Satan. He's put him above everything and everyone but himself. His fellows, when he was on this earth, were all mankind. And he was placed above all of us because he did better than any of us, and all of us combined. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces wherewith they have made you glad. We are to don the clothes of righteousness, white and pure and clean, to go before the Father to marry our husband. His garments are already there. He is perfected, and he died because our sins stained his garments. His garments were wretched and foul and smelled to high heaven. And he was stripped of those garments. The garments of sin were divided among the people who killed him. And then he died and was cleansed. And he got new garments, pure, white, and clean. And now he tells us to do the same. So that we can meet him as an equal once we're changed. On the sea of glass before the Father, the God, the ruler of all the universe. And have an everlasting marriage until death never parts. And to live happily ever after instead of as it commonly is here, living happily never after in so many marriages, the majority of them. Our hopes and our dreams cannot be fulfilled by other human beings. No matter how wonderful the spouse you think you find is, they will not be perfect and they will let you down to one degree or another. The novels and the romance stories about the knight in shining armor who comes and whisks you away and you live in bliss forevermore is a fairy tale. It does not exist. There can be levels of happiness. There can be levels of good. But they all wind up in deterioration and lost minds and bodies and death, don't they? In the meantime, we have our ups and downs and our successes and our failures and neglect one another and take each other for granted and make all the mistakes that humans make with each other. Because we are so far from perfect that even though we're united as one flesh in a marriage, both sides of that flesh are still pretty ragged when it comes to true spirituality and conduct of a life that reflects the God of all. So we have work to do. 
And we have been challenged to put on the holy garments and to be holy even as he is holy. This is not a religion, the true religion, of come as you are, everything will be okay, you're under grace, you don't have to obey, so what if you do this, that, or the other thing? It's not imputed to you as sin because you're under grace only. No, it doesn't work that way. He doesn't say, accept the name of Jesus, come under grace, and you're saved. He tells everybody called into the church in Revelation 2 and 3 to overcome. Every last human being has to overcome. You can't remain as you are. Sometimes we might get discouraged and feel futile and say, you're going to have to take me as I am because I can't seem to get changed. Can't give up. Got to keep working at it. Whatever problems you got, you got to keep working on them. Don't give up. Never give in. Remember the cartoon we've probably all seen somewhere of the water bird swallowing the frog? And the frog has his legs around the bird's neck. I will not give up, is the message. Hang in there till the end. You've seen the kitty hanging by the whatever it is, it's high clothesline or whatever. Never give up. Yeah, it's hard to change. You know what? It's almost impossible for us to change ourselves. We do not have enough moral fiber. We do not have enough willpower to fight our human nature and be perfect. It doesn't exist among human beings and didn't with Christ. He prayed to his Father till he sweat blood. He rose up early when the multitudes went around and went to pray for the strength, the power, the might, the guidance of his Father in heaven. He had a monumental struggle every day that he lived on this earth for you and me. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Nothing that you or I have ever been tempted with was he not tempted with. All points. He could not have done it without continual prayer. He didn't even need to change in that sense. There wasn't anything that needed changed. But he had to maintain <coughs> perfection. Even achieving it isn't enough if you don't maintain it. Verse 9, King's daughters were among your honorable women. Upon your right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. That's a reference to us, the potential bride. He is to adjudge us worthy of the gold of Ophir, which is a very, very fine gold found near here. We are to be among the honorable women. Hopefully the fairest one of Proverbs 31. The virtuous wife. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. 
Forget also your own people and your father's house. Does not Christ himself say that we have to come before him and love him more than father, mother, brother, sister, any relative, husband or wife? He has to be first in our lives. Absolute. No equivocation. First in our lives because he is our eternal husband. He is the one that we give our greatest devotion to. In fact, because of the powerful bond that is to exist between us and our husband-to-be, God even makes an exception there in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says, If your mate will not allow you to worship God, in peace and in freedom, but deters you in any way, you have the right to put them away and be free, not bound, to marry another only in the church. Because the relationship with us and our husband-to-be is so precious and so important that it transcends the very marriage vows we take before God to live together until death do us part. Because if we do not put our heavenly husband first, we will die eternally and death will us part from him. So we're talking about an eternal marriage with eternal consequences. Now, God does not take physical marriage lightly. And there is a very, very narrow range of circumstances whereby he will recognize a divorce. Because physical marriage pictures the marriage of the Lamb to his bride. And when he has a husband and wife married on this earth, he wants it to be that way. Now, if you're struggling to be part of the kingdom of God, and it's a struggle, whether you're single or married, unhappily married or happily married, it's a struggle to put God and Christ first. And God says, if you have a physical marriage where your mate is impeding your progress to the kingdom, you are to put the eternal spiritual marriage ahead of that one. So it is a very range, a very limited range that he allows divorce and remarriage. Christ made the only exception that he made in Matthew 19 where there was either fraud, as in the case of Joseph and Mary, or whether there was sexual uh, sin, adultery after marriage, not just fornication prior to marriage. And pornea includes that. Herbert Armstrong always thought pornea was only premarital fornication. But that is not true. And there is an example in the Bible where uh, what's her name? That that awful queen. I can't even say it. I'm getting old. Jezebel. That's the one. Was married, 
And the Greek word there that she committed was porneia. So adultery is grounds for divorce because it completely shatters and breaks the vows that two people make to each other. God does not expect you to live with a mate who's stepping out on you and might bring you diseases and might bring unhappiness and misery and so on. You don't have to live with that. That's why God divorced ancient Israel. He set the example in that. She was whoring after other nations, other leaders, other lovers, all through the prophecies. And he was justified in divorcing her. Now that's the only exception he made in the New Testament. And then Paul came along and said, If your life is being impeded by an unconverted mate, you can divorce and not be bound to them. You're free, but only marry within the church. If you marry outside the church, you are setting yourself up for heartache, trouble, despair, and failure. You truly are. And God wants to prevent that possibility of your journey to his kingdom from occurring by marrying someone who does not believe in the true God and is not a called according to his purposes. It's hard enough without a carnal mate pulling you down. And if you are being pulled down by one, you have every right before God and the encouragement of Paul who wrote God's wishes to so do. Okay? We're talking about the most important thing there is. You and I qualifying for the kingdom of God. Now, if your mate leaves you alone and doesn't drag you back, you don't have that right to walk away. But it's hard enough without somebody being an anchor around your neck in a wrong way. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people and your father's house. Walk away from family. Most of us have that are right here today. God did not call most of our relatives, fathers, mothers, our children, aunts, uncles, our friends. He called us apart from them and set us on the path toward his kingdom. And he said, you had better put me ahead of every human being that walks the face of this earth. Walk away from your children if you have to. Doesn't mean you don't love them. Doesn't mean you might try to keep a certain amount of contact with them. But if in any way they impede your worship of God, you have to walk away. The kingdom of God is the most important thing there is. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty, for he is your Lord, and worship you him. If we wear those clean garments, if we put him first, if we pay attention and incline our ear, and put him ahead of our own house, our own family, ahead of everything, he will greatly desire our beauty. It doesn't matter how old or wrinkled we are. 
It doesn't matter how ugly we were born. It doesn't matter whether our IQ is below average, average, or genius. Nothing matters except putting God first and loving Him with our heart, mind, body, and soul. And you can do that whether you're stupid or genius. You can do that whether you're ugly or handsome or beautiful. You can do that no matter what you are. So yes, all men are created equal in that sense. Equal opportunity to pursue God unswervingly. Now we're not equal in a lot of other ways. Some are more equal than others. But we have no room for jealousy. We have no room for envy. We have no room for lust, covetousness, or vanity. There's no room for those wholehearted service to God and to our brothers and sisters whom he has called to be bride with us. We're going to have to live together forevermore, brethren. We are right now trying to homogenize this little group, even as others are in other groups, into a body that works together harmoniously, loving each other, no part left out, all parts important, whether they be toes, noses, or roses, to work together efficiently toward the kingdom of God so that we might all come to the resurrection of the dead and land on that sea of glass together to become the bride of Christ. We need some alterations. The wedding dress doesn't quite fit yet. It may have to be let out and taken in and lowered or shortened or whatever it needs, cleaned some more. But we're all being fitted for it. And it needs to fit. So shall the king greatly desire your beauty. He is your Lord. Worship him. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of worked gold. Remember Esther? The situation where the king was choosing a new bride? And they prepared and pampered and took care of these gals and put them on diets and dressed them all up and cleansed them and put fancy clothes on them. They were all paraded before the king, one at a time, day by day, till he found something that he loved above all. Remember how Esther approached it? Don't give me the fancy clothes. Don't dress me all up. Don't put jewelry all over me. Just make me clean and pure and let my eyes sparkle when I meet the king. And he saw Esther and his little heart just went pity-pat. He couldn't stand it. I gotta have that one. You can paint yourself all up. You can decorate yourself. You can try to make yourself beautiful by the ways of men, but nothing comes through like shining character, pleasant disposition, willingness to serve, a nice smile, worth more than all the gold and clothes that you could ever buy. 
because God likes simple beauty, high character, good morality, and the things that he wants to live with forevermore. Or even King Ahasuerus, who could have any woman he wanted, couldn't pass that up when he saw it in Esther. And Christ won't pass it up if he sees it in you and me. The daughters of Tyre will be there with a gift, and even they will recognize the character and the beauty of the bride of Christ. She shall be brought forth unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. So he shows here that it's a multiplicity of individuals characterized as the bride or as the one or as the daughter, but that daughter will have many members, all virgins, chaste and clean, even as Paul presented the wretched church of Corinth as chaste virgins before God. He can clean anybody up, anybody. I don't care how bad you think you are, and you think you're worse than anybody that ever walked the face of the earth and are the chief of sinners, God can clean you up. God can make you whole and pure. You only have to entreat him and stay before him and work it staying that way as he cleans you up. But look at the incredible attitude that David is exhibiting here of the righteousness of Christ and the righteousness of the one who is like kind, who is just like him when they stand together there, and equal meets equal in terms of eternal life, in terms of Godship, fulfilling the purpose for which we were created, and being equal with our husband. He will always be the leader of equals, yes. He will always be in the highest position above us. But he will embrace us and hug us and love us as an equal. One flesh, one spirit, because the flesh will be gone. And embrace us forevermore and never take us for granted. The Song of Songs goes through and shows how the bride takes him for granted. And he knocks on the door and she can't turn loose of her piddle and get up and disturb herself to go answer the door and let him in. She arises and has no oil in her lamp, if you will. That doesn't work. And he is imploring us there to be ready, to have a ready mind as he does, to be of a willing and giving and serving mind as he has. There's an awful lot in this chapter. This one prayer of David is rich and deep, insightful, and gives us perspective. Verse 15, with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. We have the story of the prodigal son that we could throw in here. Yeah, he had gone out and wasted everything he had been given. He had pursued wrong goals and futility and vanity and ego and lust and covetousness and uh, greed and all those things that a human does left to himself 
And he said, why am I sitting here eating slop with the pigs? I'll go back to my father and help. And he rose out of the muck and probably found a place to wash his vile pig feces smelling body and started the journey home. And his father saw him coming and wept. He cried. And he threw a party and brought out the wine and danced and sang and laughed and joked and loved to see his son redeemed from the horror that he had gone into. And we will go before the throne of the Father in heaven to marry our bride, having returned. He will marry his bride, having returned to our father and our husband and hope. With gladness and rejoicing shall it be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your children, whom you may make princes in all the earth. That's referring to us being the bride of Christ. Our fathers will be dead, they will be in the grave, and they won't come out of it until the general resurrection of Revelation 20 after the millennium, the great white throne judgment. So we will be ruling over and directing our children, this last generation that is called. Not our fathers, our children. My father is dead, my mother's ninety and fading fast. She'll probably be, they probably will be part of the kingdom of God ruling over some of their children, since they were called and died or dying faithful. But a lot of us have forsaken our physical fathers and mothers, and they won't come up until the great white throne judgment. So it will be our children perhaps that survive all this holocaust that is coming and we will rule over them and teach them and guide them and lead them in the ways of God. Now how will our children be preserved? God protects the child for the one believing parent, 1 Corinthians 7. If our children are not rebellious children, if they are obedient, compliant, respectful children who honor their parents, they will be taken to a place of safety with their faithful parents. They may not be old enough to be changed, but they can live physically into the millennium, and we can teach them and watch over their lives as they marry and have families and we can prepare them to be a part of the kingdom of God and be our children with our husband Christ forevermore. That's what this is saying. And we may make them princes in all the earth. Since they have a background of truth and obedience, they will be willing recipients of our teaching, and they will be leaders in the world tomorrow. We can make them princes. David is projecting this whole thing forward to the wedding of the Lamb and the kingdom of God when thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
I will make your name to, remembered, to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise you forever and ever. For yours is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. Amen.